The sermon text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. This passage connects directly with what we read for our second reading from Genesis chapter 22. We read in Hebrews 11, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now these verses and what we read from Genesis chapter 22, I'm sure you noticed it in our reading and you've noticed it in your own Bible reading. This, these texts describe the most severe test that Abraham faced in his life of faith. God commanded Abraham to offer up his son, Isaac, because he wanted to teach Abraham and to teach us this morning uh, something about what it means for us to live by faith, what it means for us to live trusting in what God has uh, promised us. And so what we see in our text this morning is first that Abraham's faith was tested. It's very clear there in verse 17, by faith Abraham when he was tested. And Genesis chapter 22 begins in uh, very much the same way. So as you can imagine, when it came to this test, it was very difficult uh, for Abraham. But, you know, it probably wasn't difficult for the same uh, reasons you and I might think about today as we are Christians in the 21st century. Because when we read Genesis 22 and we read Hebrews chapter 11, what usually shocks us first is the fact that God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son, that God commanded child sacrifice. This is human sacrifice. Uh, But we need to understand that for Abraham in his day, this aspect of God's command, the aspect of human sacrifice, of child sacrifice, probably was not as shocking as it is to us today. Because Abraham grew up in a culture and in a world in which the idea of child sacrifice was rather common. Many of the religions in the ancient Near East where Abraham was born and raised, many of the religions emphasized this practice. I remind you that in Genesis 11, we read that Abraham was born and raised in Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was a city that was known for its idolatry. It was known for worshiping uh, false gods. And when speaking about the gracious, effectual call that Abraham received from God, Joshua, he explains that Abraham, when God called him, was a pagan living among pagans. Joshua chapter 24, verses 2 through 3. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. Listen to this. And they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring 
many. And so considering what Joshua says here and what, what writer explains, you know, Abraham probably grew up with neighbors who had offered up their children to the flames of sacrifice. In fact, archaeologists have found pits full of the bones of little children with evidence that they were victims of ritual sacrifice. And you know, as we consider Abraham this morning, we need to remember that at this point uh, in redemptive history and in Abraham's life, uh, you know, he did not have a Bible like we do today. Uh, he didn't have the full revelation of God as, as we do. And so he probably didn't know that God hated child sacrifice, right? We know that. It's very clear to us because in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, it explicitly says that uh, child sacrifice is among one of the things that God hates. Very clear for us in the law and the scriptures. We have the law written out for us. We know that God hates human sacrifice, and, and God will never test someone in this way again as he tested Abraham that day and commanding him to offer his son. You see, loved ones, Abraham, that moment, didn't know the full measure of what we know. And so as, as horrifying as it sounds, with the pagan background that Abraham had, he was probably not too shocked by what God commanded him to do when we consider the act itself. But it seems instead that the most difficult aspect of this test and why the text says that God tested Abraham was that God was commanding Abraham to do something that completely went against the promise that God had given him. See, this was, this was the shock for Abraham. That God commanded Abraham to kill the very one through whom the promise was going to be fulfilled. That was where the weight rested on what this test involved. You remember that when God chose Abraham by grace, he promised that he would bless Abraham with land and with a big family. Right? Those were the two key promises. And the promise when it came to a big family was not only would he have a big family like you know, Eastern Europeans or Italians, right? Uh, no, not only like that, but a huge family to the point where it says that Abraham would have so many descendants that he wouldn't be able to count them. But we know we read our Bibles that there was a problem. The problem was that Abraham's wife, Sarah, whom at that time they were both known as Abram and Sarah, Sarah was childless. She was barren. And so how would they ever have a big family? How would they ever have offspring as numerous as the sand on the seashore and as numerous as the stars of the sky? How would they ever have a family like that if they couldn't have children of their own. And the answer came in the fact that God promised that they would have a son, that despite their age, God would bless them. Genesis 17, verses 15 through 17, we read the promise. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, 
I shall give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. See, loved ones, God here was simply restating the covenant promise that he had made to Abraham earlier in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, during that wonderful ceremony in which God promised on his life, promised on his life that he would bless Abraham with a big family. There in Genesis 15, 5, where you know that God took Abraham outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. That's the promise that God gave to Abraham. Then in verse 6, Genesis 15, we read that Abraham believed the Lord. He believed him. The Lord credited it to him as righteousness because of his faith. And so, loved ones, we know the story, don't we? Isaac was born just as God had promised. He was born, and he was the son of laughter. Laughter, we know, because Sarah was 90 years old, and Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And as we saw in previous weeks, this couple, this godly couple, had waited 25 years between the promise and the fulfillment, and and the laughter in their household now was no longer laughter about wondering how God would do this thing, but now marveling and laughing joyfully at the fact that God had done this thing. He had fulfilled his promise, blessed them with this child of the promise. So, loved ones, considering all that, this background, do you see the weight of this command in Genesis 22, this test, the weight was upon the fact that Abraham was now to sacrifice Isaac, this very one through whom the promise would be fulfilled. Right? And that's why we read Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 18. The writer of Hebrews underlines for us that promise, that promise that was given about Isaac. Look again at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 18. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And yet now God was commanding him to sacrifice the very one through whom Abraham's offspring would be named. Loved ones, I want to ask this morning, why, why would God test Abraham in this way? Why would he do it? You know, Abraham, we read the scriptures, he's called God's friend three times in the Bible. Why would God test his friend in this way? And why would God test us? And why does he test his people? Loved ones, as we consider the answer to this question, we need to understand, first and foremost, that this word test that we see in Genesis 22 and in Hebrews 11, the word test does not mean tempt. It doesn't mean tempt. God wasn't enticing Abraham, and he doesn't entice his people to sin or to do wrong. James 
chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, explains what this means for us. James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, listen, and he himself tempts no one. Love when what we see in the scripture is that God tests his people, but he never tempts us in the sense of luring us to sin. We see in scripture that temptations arise because of our sinful flesh, uh, because of Satan and his enticements, and because of the sinful world we live in. But it's not a result of what God is doing in our lives. And so God does not tempt us to sin, but God does test our faith. And he tests us in order to help us understand, help you and me understand that our faith is real, that our faith is genuine. See, loved ones, God already knows whether or not our faith is genuine. He knows that because he is the one that grants faith. Saving faith is a result of his gift, of his grace to us. And so he knows whether or not we have true faith. And we also know that God is omniscient. He knows all things, right? The psalmist confesses and says, before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. God knows our hearts. He knows where we are at spiritually. And so when God tests us, it's not as though God is benefiting from the test. In this situation, as we read in our text and in our own lives, it is we who benefit. This test in Abraham's life was for his benefit so that Abraham and you and I might be reassured of the complete effectiveness and the complete truth of our faith in God. So loved ones, uh, tests, you know, whatever form they might take in our lives, tests revealed what, reveal what is in our hearts. And they also, we know, serve to uh, purify us. In God's purpose, these tests that he brings into our lives, they serve to purify us. The Apostle Paul in his first letter, you know, uh, the Apostle Peter, I'm sorry, in his first letter, he was writing to persecuted churches in the first century, to Christians who were undergoing trials of many kinds, everything from minor persecution of being rejected in the public square, of not being able to do business, of not being able to buy food, to dying for their faith, all kinds of, of levels of persecution. And Peter writes and says to those early Christians, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice there, First Peter chapter 1, the way Peter phrases it, he says that, that phrase, if necessary, if necessary, 
you are being grieved by these various trials. This phrase is indicating the fact that God in his providence is bringing these things about. If necessary, refers to the fact that these things are happening according to what God knows is best for us. John Calvin, he helps us a lot here. And, you know, Calvin, sometimes we think of him and we think of a scholar and a guy who you know, we refer to often to, to give us clarity on hard texts of the Bible, right? A great reformed theologians, uh, theologian. But Calvin in his own life experienced a lot of heartache. He lost his wife. He lost his child. He himself uh, had all kinds of illnesses, migraines. I think he suffered from gout. Um, I mean, every day was painful for him uh, to live. And yet, uh, he continued to trust in God, and he wrote about God's glory and God's goodness, even in the midst of trial. Calvin says, God does not test his people without reason, because if God tested us without cause and without purpose, he says, it would be too grievous for us to bear. What Calvin is getting at there is, if the trials we experience in this life, these trials are due to like randomness in the universe, just happen randomly out of nowhere. Or if these trials were a result of uh, God's capriciousness, and by capriciousness refers to, you know, sudden changes in mood. If these trials were a result of these things, you and I would lose and should lose all hope. But, Calvin says, we need to take consolation take comfort in God's design and purpose in all things, in his providence. Because the reasons why God allows certain trials in our lives is not always apparent. But we need to be fully persuaded that they are for our glory, for his good, or for our good and his glory. See, loved ones, we, when we are experiencing tests, when we are experiencing trials, to remind ourselves of who God is. God is my father. Christ is my brother. The Holy Spirit is my comforter. God is good. He is loving. He is sovereign. I trust him every moment of every day, and especially in this dark hour. This is what the Heidelberg Catechism explains to us. When it asks the question, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? In other words, how does the knowledge that all things happen not by chance, and not as a result of God's capriciousness, because he's having a bad day, but that all things happen by his fatherly hand. How does knowing that comfort us? How does it let us sleep at night? How does it let us go throughout our day and not lose hope and not lose sight of the glory of who God is? The answer is we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. That all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. The Heidelberg Catechism is simply summarizing what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those 
who are called according to his purpose. We see that God tested Abraham for Abraham's good and for the glory of God. We also see, secondly, in our text, Abraham's faithful response to this test. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 through 18. We're going to look especially now at verse 19. That Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The writer of Hebrews explains that Abraham was commanded by God to offer up his son, that Abraham was obedient to what God commanded him up to that final moment. And the writer of Hebrews helps us to understand how Abraham responded to this very difficult command placed before him. Because, as we read in verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead. So we know in Genesis 22 that Abraham, when God commanded him to do this very difficult thing, he did it. And from the text, as we read, there seems to be no arguing on Abraham's part. We're told merely in Genesis 22 that he got up early the next morning and that Abraham set out to obey God right away. We're told that he, Isaac, and his servants journeyed for three days before reaching their destination. You can imagine, loved ones, that those were three agonizing days for Abraham. There was plenty of time in those three days for him to uh, get cold feet, to want to back out. And yet we see that in Abraham's mind, loved ones, Abraham was already thinking that God would work out a miracle in this situation. As even Abraham, we read these indications of what he was thinking in Genesis 22, verse 5. He says to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. This is what Abraham was convinced of. And when Isaac inquired about the lamb, what did Abraham say to his son? God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. See, Abraham did not believe that God would annul his promise, that the promise would be canceled out by the death of Isaac. Although Abraham didn't know how God would do it, he knew that God would somehow harmonize his promise with what he was commanding Abraham to do at that moment. And what the writer of Hebrews explains to us is that Abraham was living in a type of resurrection faith that he believed, he reasoned from what he knew about God's character and his covenant promises that God's promise would not fail even if Abraham died. This is the reasoning that Abraham was going through in his mind. The reasoning went like this. You know, Isaac is the child of the promise. God said that it would be through Isaac that my offspring would be named, and I know that God keeps his covenant promises. And then God blessed Sarah, my wife. He blessed us with Isaac when we were as good as dead. Remember, 90 
in a hundred. He made life come from our dead bodies in a sense. That's what the, the scripture describes. They were as good as dead, and yet life came from their mortal bodies. And then Abraham, from that reason, God can therefore also bring Isaac back from the dead. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did. He did receive him back. And loved ones, you know, the reason, the reasoning that Abraham went through as he journeyed up to that mountain with Isaac is the way that you and I need to reason every day, a moment by moment. You and I need to use God's word to reason from God's character, to reason from who God is and his past faithfulness, because we know that temptation often uh, distorts our thinking. It distorts reality, the difficulties and the temptations that we face on a daily basis. It causes us to think in ungodly ways. So we need to use the scriptures to reason, to understand again, and to, in a sense, reset our foundation daily about who God is. You know that for example, Job, after the trials that came over him, those very difficult trials, losing his family, his wealth, his health, Job, in chapter 2, verse, 11 through, uh, verse 9 through 11, his wife came and said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. What was Job's response? Verse 10. You speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What was Job doing? He was reasoning from who God is, from God's past faithfulness. And he was drawing conclusions and saying, no, this is reality. God is good, and I will receive anything from his hand. And loved ones, this is why... You and I need to be in the scriptures daily because the scriptures, they provide that solid foundation of our true understanding about who God is. Because our culture, be it coming to us in the form of the internet, television, employees at work, non-Christians, we are bombarded by bad theology that is coming at us from our culture. And when we are in the scriptures daily, the scriptures provide a solid foundation and they grant us and give us a true understanding of who God is. See, our Bibles, and we would say as Reformed Christians, our creeds and our confessions, they reorient our thinking to what is true. We cut through the lies of the culture by reading the truth of God's word. We might liken it to recalibrating a device to make sure that it's accurate. There are devices in the medical field, in the automotive industry, and in manufacturing. Devices and very precise instruments are often used to measure, very accurate measurements at times. But sometimes these devices can lose their accuracy over time, and as a result can cause all kinds of, of damage. And so what they need to do is they need to be recalibrated. They need to be, again, set in precise order. And in a sense, they need to be 
brought back to working more precisely. So when we, as Christians, reason from the Scriptures, when we consider who God is and his past faithfulness, what we are doing, loved ones, is we are recalibrating our thinking. We are correcting the error and the misunderstanding that we have about life and about reality. We are filtering out the lies by taking in truth. Francis Schaeffer, many of you might be familiar with him. He was a well-known Reformed pastor and scholar. It was actually his book, True Spirituality, that I read in high school that was, apart from the Bible, one of the most formative books that I have ever read. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, he went through a spiritual crisis in his life. It happened because as a pastor, he became discouraged by the lack of love amongst those whom he was interacting with who called themselves a Christians. Schaefer was a part of a denomination that in the 40s and 50s was experiencing a lot of infighting and conflict. And Schaefer asked one day, he said, how could people stand for God's holiness and the purity of doctrine in the church and in one's personal life, and yet turn out to be so harsh and ugly. And Schaefer said to his wife, Edith, said, I feel torn to pieces by what I see among God's people. And what Schaefer did is for the next few months, he reread the Bible over and over, from Genesis to Revelation thinking again through the most basic questions about God, about Christianity, about truth. He had this phrase, he referred to them as true truths. Cut through the lies of the culture and find the true truths of God. And that experience of reorienting himself, recalibrating his thinking, strengthened him, and it prepared him for a lifetime of ministry to struggling and doubting Christians in Switzerland. Loved ones, what was Schaefer doing those few months? He was reasoning from truth, just like Abraham was. We know not using his pure reason because reason is corrupted by sin, but he was using his regenerated mind to draw true conclusions about God. That's what Schaefer did, that's what Abraham did, and that's what you and I need to do every day. Loved ones, perhaps some of you this morning need to do that, to recalibrate you're thinking using the truth of God's word. Thirdly, we see in our text this morning a God's greater faithfulness. Because as wonderful as Abraham's faith is, as it is displayed in this passage in Genesis 22 and also in Hebrews 11, we know, don't we, that God's faithfulness shines so much brighter as God provided a substitute that day in place of Isaac. The substitute was the ram that was caught in the thickets. Read how Isaac that day was bound. He was laid on the altar, ready to be sacrificed. And just at the point when the knife was raised, about to descend on his beloved son, the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do 
anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. We read in continuation, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. See, loved ones, the point of this story, the point of this account in the scriptures, is not, it's not to make us feel that we must be willing to sacrifice the most precious things that we have to God. That's how we can sometimes interpret the story, that God is calling us to offer up to him something that is very precious to us. But the point of the story instead, loved ones, is that God has provided something for us in Christ. He has provided a substitute. In the fullness of time, God provided a a perfect, a final sacrifice by sending his only begotten son to die for the ungodly, to die for you and for me. And that substitute was Christ. Christ, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, the sin of all those who repent and believe in him. Ian Duguid, Old Testament scholar, he explains it this way. He says, you know, all of the numerous Old Testament sacrifices, they were merely pictures of the ultimate reality when God himself reenacted this scene on another mountain not far away. That mountain was Golgotha, it's Calvary. There on that mountain, God the Father himself filled the role of Abraham, bringing his son, his only son, the one whom he loved, and laying him on the altar. That on that day, Jesus Christ became both the willing son and the willing sacrifice. He was, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or, in the language of Isaiah the prophet, he was the sheep who before his shears was silent. Only this time, On that day, on Golgotha, on Calvary, only this time at the crucial instant, no voice from heaven said, stay your hand. There was no angelic intervention at the last minute, only the spreading darkness of God's curse that surrounded the cross and centered upon the bruised and bloody body of the dead Son of God. There was no substitute for him, for he had to become the substitute for us. Spotless lamb was slain for our transgressions. His wounds were for our unbelief. His scars were for our sins. All praise and all glory be to him. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would inscribe it on our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for the long line of witnesses of faithful men and women who lived before us and who testified to your goodness and grace. We thank you for the ways in which you have preserved your church throughout the ages and shown yourself faithful to your people. 
Lord, we pray that you would grant us strength and conviction to live by faith in this present evil age. Cause, we pray, the seed of the word that has been planted in us now to grow and bear fruit, 30, 60, 90, even 100-fold, for your glory, for our good, both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.